Well, on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the September 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation and actually a podcast first. What we're discussing today has already been published online in the online first section, and it should be noted that September is National Disaster Preparedness Month. We're going to be reviewing the care of the critically ill and injured during pandemics and disasters, a chest consensus statement. Given recent events worldwide, the timing for the statement and podcast seems perfect. My first guests today are here on behalf of the Task Force for Mass Critical Care. Dr. Michael Christian from the Canadian Armed Forces in Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is going to be joining us. Michael, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I also have on with me uh, Dr. Naranjan Tex Kassoon, uh, Tex is his nickname, Professor of Global Child Health in British Columbia at the Children's Hospital and Sunny Hill Health Center at the University of British Columbia. Tex, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Also on, on the line with us is Dr. Christian Sandrock, Associate Professor of Medicine, Medical Director of the Intensive Care Unit, and member of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the UC Davis School of Medicine. Dr. Sandrock, thanks for joining us. Of course. Um, he's going to be uh, joining in as, as, as well as talking about his editorial that accompanies the, the consensus statement, the care of the critical ill and injured during disasters and pandemics. So. So the three of us, let's, um, or the three of you, excuse me, let's, um, let's set the stage for our listeners. Um, back in 2008, the first consensus statement was, was arranged. Um, tell us what was the goal and, and why was it even needed and what, what were we trying to accomplish? So it's, uh, Mike, I'll field that one if it's okay since I was involved uh, back with that uh, first supplement as well. Um, we had a similar group of people that led that. Um, a lot of it was spearheaded by uh, Lewis Rubinson and uh, Asha Devro and Jeff Dichter. Uh, really, uh, that first statement was the first time that um, critical care, uh, in terms of mass critical care in response to uh, overwhelming disasters, was ever published. And it was really getting some of the first concepts of uh, how do you take care of a large number of patients that are that are critically ill or injured from a disaster? Uh, until then, there had always been questions about, you know, does critical care even have a place in an overwhelming disaster or all those patients just not salvageable? And we felt there was something that uh, could really be done to help patients that are critically ill and, and make an impact on the overall mortality of the event. Um, so obviously it came out in 08. Do we have any evidence that you guys, uh, you know, that the statement's been utilized and has been effective since that time? Yeah, um, this is Christian Sandrock. I would say, you know, without without question, I think it's, you know, besides just looking in the literature and where it's been referenced, you know, I know a few places where it's been, and this is probably one of its great strengths, is it's been a bridge for discussion and a, and a template for building. So, you know, at least out here on the West Coast in California, and I guess, you know, as I'm speaking now, I'm realizing that I'm the only one of the three of us from the United States, but, you know, in some of the more um, central federal government agencies, it was it was really a template that outlined a lot of the critical thinking that needed to happen around uh, resource management and some of the issues around triage because, you know, as we know, managing critically ill patients is, is difficult at best, and then if you have an overwhelming number and your resources are stretched thin, that can really be a challenge. Out here in California, you know, I'm sort of an academic guy that's closely involved with the state, and 
we have a lot of discussions, but the practical nature of things doesn't get done. And this was really a big template that allowed for the practical side of things. And I would say that many of the things um, discussed in that first 2008 project came up with uh, the pandemic, uh, H1N1 pandemic in 2009, particularly around um, ECMO or ECLS therapy. When we started running a bit short and many of these centers were regionalized and we asked the state to coordinate, we were able to use some of those documents as a template. Oh, it's fantastic. I was just going to throw in a couple of other quick examples. Yeah, please. It's okay, Kyle. So please. Uh, I think two things. One is the thing we've heard again and again and again from people around the world because we've had feedback from you know all parts of the world about uh, the 2008 guideline is that for a lot of people it was just the first step in having a plan and a little bit of reassurance and guidance, and that made a huge difference for them in their preparations, as Christian said, for the pandemic, but also for dealing with disasters. It just gave them a way to orient themselves, to think about um, an approach to dealing with critically ill patients. And a lot of times, even if you don't actually exercise or have to use that plan, it, uh, it gives you the ability, that peace of mind that allows your overall response to be organized and effective. Um, another great example of that was uh, that we heard last year at the uh, CHESTA um, uh, 2013, a plenary, uh, or a session that was given um, about evacuation of ICUs, and we heard about uh, the experience of the uh, hospitals in New York City that were facing a, um, loss of power and evacuation, and they used some of the basic principles that were published in the, in the first version of the um, 2008 guidelines around resource allocation. And again, thankfully, they never had to actually implement the plan, but having that sense of structure and approach that they could use um, really allowed them to get on with the, uh, their focus on solving the problem rather than worrying about the what-ifs. So then obviously that was, uh, I mean, a huge success. And, and as I, if I'm hearing you guys right, it sounds like one of the things that was the major accomplishment is that for so many people, if they feel like they're trying to start from scratch, um, it seems overwhelming. But if there's already a, a, a skeleton and a framework to begin and then you, you know, locally fill in your blanks, you, you provide someone a, a reassurance that they're on the right pathway. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, there's an old adage in disaster medicine that all disasters are local. And, uh, you know, no one at, uh, even with our current guidelines, trying to aim for an international audience, could we, you know, provide answers to every, every person's questions. But really, we provide a framework, some rationale, and they can take that and really make it uh, uh, work in their own local hospital. So, so let's jump in. And, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but um, I think, Mike, I agree with you. I think that uh, one of the advances in this uh, guideline has been the address to resource poor settings. And, in fact, it plays very nicely into what we are seeing right now with the Ebola outbreak. It has been said that Ebola kills more people who never actually contract it in that it is decimating local health workers, it is depleting blood banks and essential supplies, there's reduced health care services, and it's destroying trust in the health system. So more people are dying who has never been, um, uh, have contracted Ebola. And in fact, Margaret Chan of the WHO just said recently that uh, many people have asked why the outbreak in, of Ebola virus in West Africa is so severe and so difficult to contain. She said the questions can be answered in one word, poverty. And as you know, this is one of the issues we face with a resource-limited setting where we went from basic infrastructure, strengthening primary care and basic care such that the systems would be more robust in responding to uh, situations as we are seeing now in West Africa. Well, that's a, that's a perfect segue because let's, let's talk about then now 
the the updated consensus statement. Um, a lot of work obviously went into to this uh, you know, very robust and comprehensive document, and some of it obviously represents uh, changes and updates from the 08, and then some of it uh, clearly represents uh, new ideas or new approaches. What, what were you all trying to accomplish? What, what was the, the stated kind of goals here with coming up with the uh, next generation of consensus statement? So, Kyle, I think uh, that uh, Sorry to talk. Sorry, Texa. Um, no, I think that the uh, uh, primary objective we had really when we went into this was to look for uh, the presence of evidence to guide our decisions, as opposed to uh, um, simply uh, uh, expert opinion. Unfortunately, one of the things that we we found is that although the field's advancing, there still is a paucity of of data and evidence out there. Um, so, in that case, what we did in this occasion was we used a much more rigorous approach to developing our recommendations, uh, having a, a broader uh, group of stakeholders, over 100 people uh, internationally, uh, the leading experts in disaster medicine, public health, and emergency preparedness, and uh, from a wide variety of professions and walks of life. And then we used a Delphi process to help develop the, the consensus statement. The uh, key things that I think came out of this are the three top ones uh, our sort of our goals from this were one to really integrate mass critical care and show show how it fits into the whole spectrum of response from minor surges that occur on a day to day basis right through to massive overwhelming disasters. Uh, the second, and text can speak more to this, what was the integration of pediatrics into the document, which was a uh, lacking from our our first document, uh, and then the third was to, as Tech said, really look more internationally outside of just the U.S. and Canada, but uh, both globally in terms of resource-rich uh, uh, areas, but more importantly also resource-poor areas. And Tech's really led on the, uh, the two aspects of pediatrics and the developing countries. Yeah, no, thanks, Mike. I think that uh, when we look at the issue of pediatrics, in many disasters, uh, children and women are... Uh, uh, inordinately represented, and in fact, children bear the brunt of many of the disasters. We also felt that when we look at capacity, including resource-rich countries in the United States and um, Canada, for instance, if you look at British Columbia and uh, uh, Washington State, there are the Children's Hospital, which is the only uh, tertiary care children's hospital, where there's more capacity for adult care. So we felt that uh, we needed to incorporate pediatrics and children's care in all aspects of the disaster planning and make it in such a way that our co uh, colleagues who work in primarily adult medicine would not see this as an onerous task, but um, would be uh, clearly engaged in it in such a manner that there would be a graded response. For instance, we, we can see where children will ta be taken care primarily in a uh, children's facility, but there may be teams, uh, there, once uh, the children's facility is overwhelmed, then the older age group can be managed in adult facilities. There will be educational sort of um, material just-in-time education, as well as the possibility of teams from children's hospital working with adults. And I think that was a great step forward because, as I said, many of our colleagues were a bit uh, skeptical of it initially and um, wary of where the process was going. But I think that uh, incorporating children makes it a more holistic approach. And in many cases, we will not have the uh, luxury of triaging children and adults in different directions. 
The other issue, as Micah rightly pointed out, the resource-poor settings is one where for many years, uh, most of us who work in global health and we hear of disasters, most of these areas are working on the edge and, in fact, is practicing contingency and, and um, standard of care on a regular basis and making many of the decisions that we uh, tend to make only occasionally. So we felt that we had a lot to explore and learn from them as well as come to some uh, rationale as how things can be strengthened. And we felt that bringing, uh, getting the broader consensus, as Mike spoke, from uh, over 100 experts from about eight or nine countries really um, uh, was a fertile ground to really explore how staffing models in these countries, triage tools, how we educate and how we strengthen systems in those areas. But I think one of the issues that when we started down this path that we really um, um, uh, really um, made a great headway with also is the response, uh, what teams can go there, because we felt uh, many um, in many areas people would just go there because they are willing to help or just out of um, you know, the, the pure feeling of a moral obligation, but we felt teams needed to be trained properly. And also, we should not be providing care that is not within the um, capacity or the, the standard of care within the local community. So, as Mike said, that um, the, this built on some of the experience we had before, but it also broadened the issue and the issue of uh, the legal consideration, the ethical considerations all played into it and the considerations of really partnerships across the world. You know, I think um, this is Christian Sandrock. I think one of the the big you know game changers is really highlighting what what Tech said. So, you know, I was not involved in the second document, but I was involved in the first one. But, you know, the regardless of what society and what level of wealth you have, you know, that's a disaster can really bring, you know, most structures of government and healthcare down to its knees pretty quickly. And if you're in a place like West Africa now with Ebola, that's really not far to fall if your infrastructure is already very limited and stretched, as, as Tex alluded to. But, you know, in some of the Western societies, there may be a lot of reserves there, but over time or over some of these large surges, you can reach those points. And, you know, we've seen this in prior disasters, whether it's been Hurricane Katrina or other. And, you know, at those stages, you know, resources really become the form of wealth that you have. So at getting access to health care, getting access to being airlifted out of West Africa, or certain medications become that form of wealth. And that really is, is a level of equity that hasn't in the past, uh, in the literature, or really in any disaster um, preparedness documents, been addressed with the level that it has with this group. And I think that's really going to be, you know, over its longevity, that's going to be the real value of these documents documents is, you know, how do you get there and how do you get there over all the varying types of disasters and special populations and in different, you know, societies and countries. And I think that's really the, its greatest value. So you can take um, places that have very different cultural values and really come to the same point in delivering health care. And that's, that's pretty significant. I was also struck by, um, and I think one of the other strengths, I mean, amongst the many that came out of this document was uh, it is... It, had a lot to do with how you guys were were making definitions of things that were going to be putting strains on a system. In, in other words, you know, it's very easy to suddenly grab like something big, like an you know Ebola outbreak, and it, it's obviously got a shock value, and there's clear concerns and numbers. But also, how about just a steady stream of of a routine infection in an area, but it's driving your ICU 
uh, bed use rate up by another 20%, but continuously and regularly. And it struck me, and, and I think that's one of the, the real strengths here, that it, the, the idea of, of mass critical care and, and so forth, that it wasn't just some big massive explosion or earthquake or hurricane, but it's just suddenly anything that's putting a stretch to your system. And that might just be a, a regional outbreak of pick, pick an infection that's not even some massive disaster infection, but it's just driving up healthcare utilization rapidly and massively from a critical care perspective. I think that's a, a great observation. The uh, two of the things that actually come out of this document, one both this time and the last time, was really highlighting for people that um, that disasters and pandemics impact uh, beyond the emergency department. So a lot of emergency preparedness to this date has always focused on the uh, the ED and what happens in the early part of a disaster. But certainly from a number of the the bombings, including the the London uh, 2007 bombing, uh, there's excellent evidence to show that the impact of a disaster on the emergency department is actually usually very short-lived. Uh, in London, on the 7-7 bombings, they declared a major incident, I think it was just before 8 o'clock in the morning, and by uh, early afternoon around 1-1.30, they were back to normal operations in their ICU, whereas the, uh, sorry, normal operations back in their emergency department, whereas their ICU actually had ongoing uh, surge with uh, extra um, a number of patients for uh, up to a month afterwards and had to you know, increase their ICU capacity by over 50% to try and cope with this uh, during that whole time. So the disasters have a lot longer lasting impact in the ICU because the critically ill patients often take a lot longer to recover. Similarly, the balance we have in terms of supply and demand within our ICUs in many countries, even within the U.S., but certainly in countries like uh, Canada and the, the U.K., is we're always sort of operating at 80-plus percent capacity. So we don't doesn't take much to tip us over and to be into a, a surge situation. And, and the, the same basic principles apply whether you're in a minor surge, a moderate surge, or a major surge. And that's one of the things we really brought into this uh, current document was that uh, uh, spectrum of surge response. Yeah, couldn't have said it better, Mike. Um, the the point is, as you um, rightly pointed out, when it came to the resource limited areas, too, this was one of the major areas because um, once the um, acute impact of the disaster was over, uh, there was a lot of discussion regarding reconstitution and recovery because of the impact on healthcare providers and surviving patients, both short term and long term, as opposed to uh, as regards to mental health and rehabilitation. And it is well known also that in many of the disasters, for instance, the Haiti earthquake, um, uh, once the acute problems have been addressed, then um, it becomes a public health issue because there is sanitation problems, water problems, there is infection that poses a major problem. So reconstitution and effective disengagement is a problem because there is no, there is no um, uh, good that can come off a situation where we engage very early on in the acute phase, and once the acute problem is over, we do not find some way to engage in restoration and improving and reconstitution efforts. I um, I was wondering amongst you know all the various and, and obviously many recommendations, and and I, I was struck by the just the. the Overwhelming, in, in a good way, overwhelming scope of, of the document. What do you think in, in resource-rich in resource 
areas. What do you think is going to be the potential hardest thing to start to implement? Where, where do you all anticipate barriers um, and, and wonder if there were thoughts on how to develop strategies to immediately overcome this? Or do we think that a lot of these barriers, even if they're, even if they're kind of social political, will be overcome by the, uh, the, obviously the fact that we want to all be prepared for any form of a disaster? Um, I think I think that um, the barriers would be local. I think a lot of it is cultural sort of uh, barriers. And as I said, wearing my um, hat, uh, my pediatric hat, I know yeah. in in our, in our area, and this is not unique uh, to us. The big barrier would be um, acculturating everyone to the um, uh, fact that they may be able, they may need to take care of children. I think that's one of the barriers. That it, but the other big barriers, uh, I think that what one of the things you're alluding to is that um, disaster preparedness has to be um, part of the everyday uh, functioning of organizations. Uh, you cannot wait until a disaster to pull this plan off the shelf and dust it off and start working. But one of the issues with that is that it is resource intensive, and I, there's going to be a lot of pushback in um, both U.S. and Canada where there are resource limitations already and there are so many competing demands. Why should we um, spend money or put so much emphasis on something that may or may not happen? We are likely right. to be safe. And I think that that would be the biggest uh, pushback that I see. Because, for instance, in, um, in um, West, the West here in um, in um, uh, uh, British Columbia and um, Washington State, we have had discussions because we are both on the earthquake belt and what would happen if one of the children's hospital goes down. And it takes a tremendous amount of um, time and resources to plan logistics of how we would work with each other, transfer patient, um, and those sort of things, including um, the issue of uh, an international border. So that increases the complexity along the West Coast here. But in any situation, I think, um, is the issue of where do we divert scarce resources across the board. And, I mean, interestingly, um, this is Christian Sandrak again. Um, you know, for us in California, it's a little bit different than what, you know, what Tech said. I, I think many of us as providers and as, you know, docs, we know in a disaster our, our scope of practice will be stretched. And that's hard. And I think over the years, even from before our 2008 document, this is something we've explored. I think the area that's difficult, and this has already come up in meetings um, when, you know, we just had a suspected Ebola case um, right near here in one of our hospitals, so we started having planning meetings before their test came back negative. And the one thing that is very hard for our government to understand is that they would actually have to get involved in the healthcare business. And we're a private healthcare, you know, run run uh, government and or run uh, programs. So, right. you know, it's the idea that now they're going to have to step up and figure out which patients go where and help triage and decide where people move across large geographic regions like the West Coast. And, you know, if one area is adversely impacted, that spreading that, that wealth or those resources is something that we've done in the past, but not with patients and not with people. And the fact that many of these government officials and public health officials will have to know health care or have somebody on board that understands health care patient care is new to them. And, you know, immediately, even just last week, they were resisting that. That was something they didn't want to hear about, think about, or explore. And, you know, hospitals do their thing. They talk to each other. They manage our patients. You know, we'll just, if they call us and they need more ventilators, we'll get them more ventilators. But, you know, it's, it's very, much more complicated than that, as you see in these documents. And that's, that's our limit. I think well, and it's, 
sorry. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, Christian actually just picked up on the on the one of the key points that I was going to make, which is that uh, uh, it is that trying to that that point he made about having someone who understands the healthcare system working with public health. Um, both Christian and I are uh, are both critical care infectious disease and public health physicians, so we we're used to wearing both those hats. But most critical care physicians aren't used to being involved and engaged with public health, um, and most public health officials aren't used to being engaged with uh, particularly intensivists. So trying to bring the two parties together and and develop those uh, regional coalitions, which uh, Jeff Dichter talks about in, in his documents, and, and have a system where you have not just uh, emergency physicians that are doing that early part, but critical care physicians, which, which really understand the inner workings of a hospital and the dynamics of dealing with critically ill engaged with public health in this planning is, is one of the key elements, but very difficult to uh, overcome because a lot there's not a lot of natural links to begin with with those populations and, uh, and groups of uh, professionals. And Mike, if, if I take a closer on business text here, um, wearing my hat as Vice President Medical Affairs, the administrative hat for pediatrics within the province of British Columbia and the Children's Hospital, it's even more local. I think even within the institution, getting the various groups to see that they need to communicate with each other and we need to have a very cohesive system within the hospital um, is also um, an educational process. For instance, right now we're discussing guidelines for Ebola, and the eMERGE has their, uh, discussing their method of what they're going to do when the patients may be housed in the ICU. The ICU is separate, and I've had to encourage people to work together to really um, come with a cohesive plan. And what you and Kristen are talking is really the larger um, so-called umbrella plan that goes beyond one hospital to networks, as uh, Jeff Dichter spoke about, and then provincial or within a state, and then national, and um, in some cases, as you see right now, international. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, which I think you guys were bringing to, and, and to the forefront, and, and just even listening to that, uh, I think one of the examples Christian said, I, I can envision a scenario, there's a, there's a uh, pandemic going on in one part of both of our countries, and you're running out of ventilators, and you call to the central part of both countries saying, we need some more ventilators, and having them say, Heck no, because we're sure it's coming our way next, and we want to make sure we have them. You know, you start to get that hoarding mentality if it's everyone's left to their individual fiefdoms. And I wonder, again, from the perspective of developing a more nationalized plan, which seems to me going to be one of the barriers, um, uh, to essentially allow a nationwide triage of, of resources. Yeah, Kyle, this is text again. I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the uh, the plan, the national plan, to really. Um uh, have cash cash of resources is very important, more so in um, children because the size differences are such in children that right. at every age there's a different size in the tracheal tube, catheters, there's a gastric tube, you're looking at feeds, diapers, and those sort of things, which is frequently overlooked. But another thing that you mentioned, the issue of one part of a, a country being hit, um, I, we saw this um, during H1N1 pandemic where the colder parts of the country and some uh, special populations, Aboriginal populations, were hit harder. The fact is that um, and then um, there was the north-south divide, whereas um, you would see in the cold areas in, one, in the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere, depending on winter or summer, where the disease would be more prevalent. 
I think one of the missed opportunities in many of those situations was the opportunity to learn about a disease because many times we are seeing diseases that we know very little of. For instance, this, uh, um, the issue of Ebola when we look at the critical care issues in Ebola, we are struggling to find robust literature that really points us in the right direction as to what to treat. And we are really sort of basing much of what we do from experience with dengue, um, dengue, severe dengue and dengue hemorrhagic fever and the surviving sepsis campaign guideline. So one of, the, one of the things in this document that we have not spoken about, and I think Mike can sort of... Um, uh, talk about it um, uh, a lot more, is the issue that we felt that um, there were missed opportunities and research or some method of uh, studying and uh, sharing information should be a big part of all uh, pandemics and disasters. Yeah, I couldn't uh, agree more, Tex, and thanks for raising that. Um, you know, it was really disappointing after uh, a number of years of working in this field and, and knowing people have been trying to, uh, uh, trying to do work and trying to advance the field to really see how little, um, how little progress we've made in developing uh, evidence base, uh, uh, evidence bases for uh, making our recommendations. And I think, um, you know, one of the things we're learning through this is that just like you have to prepare for a disaster um, and have an infrastructure in place to do that, you also have to prepare to do research during a disaster or a pandemic and have infrastructure in place for that because these uh, incidents tend to, you know, happen suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, you know, you don't have, uh, or in the past we haven't had uh, REB protocols in place and uh, studies set up just to, to go as soon as an unknown disease shows up. Um, so by the time you get through the REB boards and the planning and all the usual research sort of steps, get funding, the uh, the outbreak is over or the disaster is resolved. So a number of groups around the world, particularly on the critical care side, a, a group called INFACT and uh, another group called ISERIC, are both you know starting to make uh, significant progress in, in developing this infrastructure for, for research that can be in place and, and launched during uh, an outbreak or a pandemic. Um, a number of our colleagues globally have you know started to make some progress with that during SARS and then uh, H1N1, and now the same is, is being done during Ebola. But really, we need more people to, to buy in, more people to participate, and more people to prepare so that they can do research and recognize the value of both the response, but as well as research to inform future responses so we don't keep reinventing the wheel again and again and again. That, that seems to tie into your section uh, and, and development of the of the consensus for legal preparedness, both I think from like what Tex alluded to, you know, I, I don't take care of kids and now suddenly I'm in charge of a 12-year-old, what's my liability? But I think also the legal preparedness from the perspective of, you know, like you just said, if it's got to go through the two-month process of a review board before I can conduct any data collection, you know, the disaster's long done maybe, um, you know, is there a, is there a framework for uh, for a legal safety net uh, for the people that are participating, and from a research perspective or clinically, yeah, I think in terms of both, there, you know, that's the the legal document does highlight that. We touched on that a little bit in 2008, but really expand upon it now in this uh, uh, supplement, which is the need for legal preparedness, the the need for um, the legal system to look at this on legislators to have um, uh, legislation in place 
to protect healthcare workers, to provide a structure for that response and the legal infrastructure to, to enable the response, uh, and also to address issues such as um, uh, conducting research during, a, uh, during emergencies. The other thing is, is also what some of these groups are doing, which is they, they recognize, you know, REBs are important, ethical considerations are, are often even more important during something like a disaster. So we don't want to see those processes shortcut or, or given short shrift, but you need to prepare in advance. You need to, you know, organize your protocols. You can get, uh, and what we're working on is having pre-approved protocols for nameless, unknown respiratory infection outbreak um, to be in place, reviewed, and just basically what I call sleeper protocols. And as soon as the uh, <laughs> pandemic hits, they turn on, and we can start to collect data, and we can start to uh, um, have that infrastructure in place ready to go. I, I was struck by also some of the very concrete things that were at least suggested in the document in regards to uh, triage. And, um, you know, that, that's always, I think, some of it was is the part I think that most people are concerned about if they were suddenly thrust into a scenario of, does this person get sent to an ICU or not, uh, especially in a, in, in a scenario where it's uh, you're already stretched ex- extremely thin and, and are truly uh, making some life and death decisions. And I was struck uh, at least by some, there were some clear concrete guidelines um, from your committee uh, to, to help uh, guide practitioners that might be literally facing this in the front line. Yeah, I think from the triage perspective, the, the first thing I always say is that you never want to be in a triage situation and you always want to do all you can to uh, to avoid it because any situation where you reach the point that you've exhausted your resources and you're um, facing those you know horrible decisions is always going to be a, a, you know, a bad day um, so that's really a push for um, for uh, governments and hospitals and individual practitioners to prepare so that we can try and use our skills and use our resources effectively so we never get there. But if you do end up finding yourself there, as we saw um, in the uh, example from uh, New York, where even though they didn't have to implement it, um, having some sense of organization, some sense of structure uh, to that process gives people uh, peace of mind and uh, and helps, you know, with it being transparent and out there and open, that uh, it helps uh, strengthen the, uh, the the structure of uh, the healthcare system and the integrity of it, so that uh, everyone knows that there will be a fair and uh, an ethical approach with the aim of trying to help the most people possible. Uh, now we still need a lot more data, and we still have significant room to improve in the quality of decision making that can be done in terms of, re- uh, of uh, triage and. And that's another area where a lot of research is, is still con- uh, continuing. What um, what area? You know, it's a it's a very large document. We this podcast could on, on one level be you know fifty hours long, um, but what what area have we not gone through? Or another, what part? Or, or what do you want to highlight from this uh, document and all of this work that we haven't uh, touched on yet today during our recording? I think one of the issues also um, the uh, sort of um, attention to special populations. Yeah. And uh, one of the issues that uh, I'm very uh, pleased with this document that children are not uh, considered a special population. They are considered as a the uh, within society, and they will be in um, considered in all in all centers in all scenarios um, uh, for as far as mass critical care. 
But the issue of special population, we felt, and I think throughout the document, one of the common thread was we need to prepare. We can't wait to the end. So for special population, those who are chronically ill and technologically dependent and are fragile, we need to have a um, disaster preparedness for these population as part of their primary health care maintenance. So we need to identify centers, regional centers, where um, they can be sent. And um, the, other, the other issue we said is that um, uh, we need to make sure there are special pharmacists involved, special technology, uh, uh, individuals, uh, technology and um, skills that can manage these populations so they will not uh, overburden their health care resources in the acute center. So, can we give, throw, throw one or two examples out of a special population, like just to give to give our listeners a clinical picture of what you mean by a special population? Well, in pediatrics, what um, uh, one, one special uh, group that we will say would be those who are ventilator dependent at home. Okay. Okay. So these uh, children, um, uh, we can have special areas because they're already at home. They can be uh, managed in their communities and do not have to come to uh, the central thing. Another big group, and I think this is more an issue in the adult population, is the dialysis population. So I think Mike and Kristen can speak more of that. And I think, uh, this is Mike, Kristen, again, particularly relevant to the, uh, to the uh, chest uh, audience uh, are patients that are on home oxygen. Um, so right. I know it is a large group of respirologists that uh, will be listening to this podcast. And Asha Devereaux is, um, has done a lot of work and written about her experiences um, in uh, Southern California after the wildfires and and having and, uh, and power failures and having people who are on home oxygen concentrators for their end-stage COPD or uh, some other process that uh, lose their power and show up suddenly in hospitals and they end up, you know, they, all they require is really an electrical outlet and some source of oxygen, but they end up in the emergency department, which overwhelms the emergency department and, and uh, plugs that up and the inability to care for other patients. So, uh, you know, part of every patient who's on home oxygen, uh, part of their primary health care plan, as Tech said, needs to be a plan for what that patient's going to do in the event of a, of a disaster, a ice storm, a power failure, a, 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 a some time where they have to evacuate their home. Okay, great. Terrific. Um, okay, so Tex, thanks for adding that to, on an area that we hadn't yet expanded on and discussed. Uh, Mike or Christian, what do, what do you guys think? Is there any other areas that I want that we make sure we highlight as we start to wrap up our podcast for the for our listeners? No, the, you know, this is Christian Sandrock. The only other area um, which we sort of talked about is a. Um, Briefly, as you know, in handling these large surge of patients, um, there was a lot of discussion about, uh, and this is more particular to the United States, but there was a lot of discussion about what kind of resources you need to have on hand and how long can you survive and uh, without a certain level of support either from local communities or uh, national or international communities. And I think that's, you know, that's something that's been bantered around a lot in the healthcare industry. And if you're, you know, pretty much any practicing physician here in the United States gets used to this idea of just-in-time delivery where, you know, these drugs, you, you don't really have more than a day's worth of drugs sitting in your pharmacy at your institution and, you know, not more than a day's worth of ventilators just sitting idle in your institution and you can call up and get them delivered as needed. And that's something that's really not going to happen in a larger disaster. And we have have experienced that a lot. The old document really 
weighed in on that um, greatly. But I think that's another area where this document sort of built on that even more and really set some expectations for healthcare facilities, local and regional governments. And I think that's another big area of, of planning that, at least for us at our institution, helps us helps us greatly. You know, we sit there and say we'll stockpile things, but it doesn't really happen. And what that expectation is isn't really laid out. And you know, as Tex alluded to, you know, if you get a few special population patients who need some equipment and they tie up your emergency room, that can really change how you how you manage these resources pretty quickly. And I think having those on hand um, is pretty important. And I think uh, it's my Christian again. Related to that, Christian. Um, in the business continuity of operations uh, uh, yeah. document and, and also in the evacuation document, they talk about highlighting the need of, um, you know, we've made such great advances in moving to an electronic patient record and how, how wonderful that is on a day-to-day -day basis, but that really changes how you operate during a disaster and the, the need for uh, IT infrastructure to be able to be established rapidly be able to access those documents and how do you transfer information with a patient if you're moving them from one institution to another institution if you have to evacuate them. So as our healthcare system advances and we make you know, improvements in terms of uh, patient safety and technological advances, we also have to advance in terms of our disaster preparedness and uh, there's a lot of issues such as that that are captured in the uh, business continuity of operations uh, uh, paper. I think one of the other things that we didn't get a chance to highlight, but just very briefly, one, you know, because obviously it's a, it's a very large document. There's there's a there's a lot to absorb. I liked um, table one, and you talk about it early in your introduction about the primary audiences for the various suggestions. And so, you know, you can, I'm a, I'm a hospital administrator. What part do I desperately need to digest versus not as much? And you clearly highlight suggestion numbers on, you know, who it's more relevant to or who's the higher stakeholder, if you will, uh, at each one of these. And, and I actually think that's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, if someone wanted to look at this document and it's just, uh, at the overall length and said, gosh, where do I begin? I'm a clinician who might be dealing with this. Um, you can go right to table one and, and, and at least find the more abridged version of where you need to dive. Yeah, that was certainly one of the challenges of, you know, trying to do justice to having a good scope and breadth of recommendations, but also make it relevant to the individual readers. And, uh, you know, Chest was uh, uh, very helpful and instructive in terms of their their guidance and their support and all the work we did in developing this document and the and the leadership of the of the guidelines oversight committee to try and produce a, a document that will be useful to the uh, to the um, public and practitioners out there. Well, terrific. Well, guys, I unless anybody's got any finishing final thoughts, I'm I'm happy to to have uh, yeah. anybody add anything. Tex, you got something you want to I add? Think, I think my final thoughts. I think that um, as I said. Um, and we said from the beginning that this document was based on a rigorous review of the literature. And as we said also, that there is a lot more that we need to learn. Uh, there's a lot um, from this document. I see this as a starting point, and I can see iterations within the next few years based on many of the things that we will be learning um, over the next few years. And one of the very important things I think that um, we'll need to do over a period of time is really engage the public, engage uh, government policymakers, et cetera, but also engage the public because I think this has a lot of um, uh, it's very emotionally charged in many areas when you have to limit care, and there are a lot of ethical considerations that we need to share with those who may be affected. I think that's an excellent point. Mike, Christian, anything else you want to add in closing? No, I think the uh, text 
ended on the perfect note. You know, it's uh, it's patience first, and in this time, you know, patience always have to be our first and last thought. And really, this is this document is about providing care for people in need um, who are critically ill and injured during disasters and pandemics. And and that's really you know what this is all about is trying to help people. Yeah, totally agree. Terrific. Well, guys, thanks so much, and and for our listeners. Um, uh, there's there you know you can obviously go to the online first section uh, and start reading uh, and add to what you've just listened to. But uh, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, thanks for a great podcast. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Great. Yep.